in a landmark study that he called Bowling Alone, Harvard researcher Robert Putnam says, quote, visits with friends are now on the endangered species list. In fact, if the drop-off in friend visits in our country continues for the next 25 years, the way they have in the 25 years uh, leading up to the publication of the book, getting together with our friends will go extinct. Why? Why are picnics in our country down by 60%? Why are organizations that have lasted for generations in our country declining and dying? The League of Women Voters, the PTA, the United Way, and yes, many congregations. I mean, just the fact that you and I are here tonight means we are something of outliers. Why do we Americans consistently tell pollsters that if we had a choice between hanging out with friends or staying home, we'd stay home? We burrow in. We turn on Netflix. But we also, and here I'm quoting Robert Putnam, quote, tell pollsters that we wish we lived in a more civil, more trustworthy, more collectively caring community. So what all this means is that we long for community more than ever before, and we have no idea how to get to it. Now, we Christians have our own kind of version of this challenge, and I think we need to admit something that many Christians feel, but do not often talk about, and that goes something like this. I'm scared of church, of giving myself to it again. When I meet somebody now, I just, I kind of assume you've probably had a bad church experience. For real. They are either, they had the overzealous nun who wrapped their fingers with the ruler, or they had the pastor who went off on a power trip, or they had something, or worse. And even if you say, well, the church has no more or less scoundrels than, say, politics or sports, and I would say that's probably right, I hope, it hurts more, because in the church we open ourselves to the eternal, we hope for the best, and it hurts when we get the worst. 25 years ago, I went to a conference, and while there, this woman that I barely knew, she was from Kentucky, and she prayed for, for me, and she unleashed one of the most astonishing prophetic prayers I've ever heard, before or since. And she started by saying some things in her prayer that I thought, holy cow, she read my mail. Like, what? No one, nobody knows that except for God and me. And, and, and yet she was, putting, she was revealing my inmost heart in her prayers. And then she said uh, that despite my not having gone to seminary, I would be released into pastoral ministry, which, as you know, in the Anglican tradition, very difficult, unlikely at best. And then she said, Karen and I would serve together and be a spiritual mother and father to many children, even though Karen wasn't ordained either. And I walked away overwhelmed with a sense of something just happened. God was here. I don't understand it. I don't know what it all means. I don't know where it's going to lead me. But wow, what just happened? God was in the room. Uh, within that very year, though, 
the church we were in got into some deep conflict. People began accusing each other, demonizing each other. The pastor was forced out. And ultimately, Karen and I left. And I just kind of spun down into a whirlpool of anger and hurt. And I was like, what, what was going on there? I mean, it was such a bitter joke to think now about being a pastor. I'm like, ministry is for masochists and the insane, you know? And in my vulnerable state, Satan came to me. I felt, it's a very difficult experience to describe, but I felt like I was standing on the edge of a black abyss. I deep, I could not see to the bottom, and I felt him tempt me, give up on it, just jump. And I knew what it meant. Give up on every single church forever. That's the only way you're going to be safe. It was very tempting. I came this close to jumping. So I really, I think I understand the guy uh, at one church who told me, you know, you see me here and you think I'm participating, but I'm not. I was like, oh? He goes, yeah, it would just be too much hassle to have to explain to my wife and kids why I'm not going with them anymore. Or the ones who leave church and craft their own spiritual activities, like walking through the woods or listening to worship music. Researcher George Barna called this the personal church of the individual, which we could have a whole sermon on, but we're going to not do that. And here we are all tonight, sitting in these pews attempting what the sociological trends would say is endangered and what our own experience would tell us is high risk. We are trying to do something radical. We're committing ourselves to a community, and not just any community, but one where we say explicitly that central to our mission is loving others. But to love others, we know that must mean I have to get to know and open up and be exposed and see you at your worst moments and stay in there with you and you stay in there with me accepting full well. That means we may be hurt and probably will be. So may I offer us all tonight a survival guide on how to survive church in three words. Well, Jesus doesn't teach us these words while he's sitting on a grassy hilltop with fleecy clouds going by in the sky and all seems right with the world. It comes on a night when Jesus is deeply troubled and he bursts out to his friends, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And then he looks around the dinner table. Now, Jesus is deeply troubled, it says. This hurts. I think sometimes we've pictured Jesus as somewhat aloof, kind of going through what has been, you know, sort of set forth from scriptural prophecy, that he's somehow above the hurt. No, this is crushing. Betrayal always is. I, I once helped a, a friend of mine, a pastor, who had been turned on by a few leaders. He, now, the pastor had made some mistakes, fair enough. But without any HR process, he was forced out. And suddenly, he and his family had to leave the community, the church, the no certain job to go to. And so I helped him pack up his office. It was a strange experience. He was wandering around the office, taking volumes off, looking at them, and then starting to read with no particular purpose or direction. He was in shock. 
and I'm like, what are those? Well, those are the poems from my high school creative writing class. And I'm like, um, you know, I don't think we have time. And meanwhile, his wife was at home, curled up in a fetal position on the sofa. So Jesus is feeling right at this moment in his life this gut punch of betrayal. And Peter motions to John to ask Jesus, like, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one that I give the bread that I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, as we know, he gave it to Judas. Now, I think possibly something that's going on here is that in first century Jewish culture, as best we can tell, it was considered a way of honoring somebody to let them eat first. Sort of like on birthdays, who gets the first bite of birthday cake? The birthday boy or the birthday girl, right? We all know that. And so we don't start eating the cake until we make sure they, they got a bite of cake. And so what Jesus may be doing here is that instead of eating first, he's actually giving that honor to Judas. I wonder if Jesus is making one final attempt to win Judas back from making a decision he will forever regret. And Jesus is demonstrating for you and for me and for everybody who takes this crazy risk of entering his community, you can betray me and I will still give you the bread of honor. But Judas has gotten to that point, and maybe you recognize this in your own life at some point, but where you're so angry with the person, you're so contemptuous of them now that even if they show you kindness, it feels like an insult. It's like nails on the chalkboard. And so the Bible tells us when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Now still, it's not too late for Jesus to protect himself. All he has to do is say, guys, Judas is the one. Eleven guys, get up, jump on Judas, beat him into a pulp, and he's not going anywhere to betray anybody. It's done. But Jesus will not take away Judas's freedom. So he simply says, if that's what you've determined to do, you do it. If that's your plan, that's your plan. Jesus does not protect himself from betrayal, and he does not protect any of us who follow him from that same experience in the community. Why does he not protect us? Wouldn't it be much better if we could say to believers, you know, and, and quote Jesus, come enter my community where betrayal is completely unknown, motives are pure, and nobody will break your trust. But he doesn't say that. I think maybe it's because he, to protect us, he'd have to be controlling. Like the same electric guard fence that keeps the betrayer out keeps community out, keeps relationships out. And we're, we're inside the fence, feeling stuck there, lonely and longing. I read recently from a, a graduate school of education study at Harvard, 36% of all Americans, recent study, feel serious loneliness. And the groups where it's really high Young adults, 61%. Mothers with young children, 51%. Not a surprise. Okay. So, but Jesus watches his betrayer get up and leave their dinner table, walk out by himself, and on this final night of Jesus' earthly life, he looks that reality squarely in the face and gives you and me a way through the inevitable pain of community. There's 11 men still in the room. There's Mary Magdalene and other women disciples who helped 
uh, serve and bankroll and, and uh, do apostolic ministry with him. And he says to them all, dear children, I'll be with you only a little longer. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Right when Jesus is being hated, he says, love each other. Right when he's being sold out, he says, love each other anyway. When Jesus knows the end is near, what is it that he most wants us to hear? Love each other. Three words. So surprising. I don't know about you, but I think the way to deal with our fear, my fear of how others will treat me, is these three words. Protect myself. Or is that two words? Well... Sorry, Al. But Jesus gives us a different way, a turn it inside out way. And he says, no, actually what I'm asking you to do is the opposite. I'm asking you to love each other. Betrayal seems like the most powerful weapon and the one we should defend against, but love is actually more powerful. Follow me on this. Love will free us from the betrayer's power. And while the betrayer goes on to their own inner desolation, or in Judas's case, the end of his life, sadly, we become a person more connected to God, more comforted by God, and able out of our own experience of pain to turn around and love the next person. So we all naturally fear entering community because we might be betrayed. We fear that person who will do that to us. And Jesus thinks, you know what you should fear more? Is being the betrayer. Love each other. Why do people betray? Well, because love is hard. And they wear out and they give up. You know, Judas did healings along with everybody else. He laid hands on people and saw them get healed. He was part of all that ministry. He cast out demons like everybody else. But, and why, why would he get up and walk out on three years of living and traveling and eating together because love is too hard? How am I supposed to stay with these people when all the cultural elites hate them? That's too much of a cost for me now. Why am I supposed to stay with a leader who keeps talking about dying? That's morose. He has no leadership vision. Now today, nobody else is saying love each other. Really. We do have a lot of talk about acceptance. And there's much, much value in that. But to me, it can often come across as kind of this like zero-sum contract. I will not expect anything of you, and you definitely cannot expect anything of me. That's acceptance. Well, okay, but is that going to bring us into community? Really? It's going to bring us into one slightly angry and isolated person standing somewhat in the vicinity of another slightly angry and isolated person. But we're all constantly conditioned to believe, I'm going to find freedom as I express and fulfill my desires regardless of what others may say. I mean, our smallest children can sing along with Princess Elsa. Let it go. Let it go. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. But how do you build community when everybody's saying, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And into this like hurricane force wind of self-assertion, Jesus calmly stands and goes, okay, um, how free are we if we're constantly thinking about our needs, our rights, 
why those dumb people are in my way, why I'm not getting more of what I need. And so Jesus offers a completely different way out of that. He like burrows under all that and says, love each other. Love's stronger than betrayal. Love is better than a quasi-acceptance and thousand times better than lonely isolation. So friends of the Savior, how, how do we do that? I mean, we've committed ourselves. We're in. It's in our mission. And I want to just offer here, I want to just step into pastor mode and just offer some words that I hope will be helpful as I've tried to reflect on this text. The first one is realize we can't do it on our own. Jesus gives this command to love each other to fallible people, painfully flawed. Scripture is very honest about all that. Ones who are obviously going to hurt each other and fight with each other, like Paul and Barnabas, who fought so much they had to go on separate trips after that. Or Yodia and Syntyche, to prove that the women leaders can fight as well as the men. But we don't have to summon up the love within ourselves. What we actually have to do, Oswald Chambers says, is recognize our complete weakness and our dependence upon God. That will be the very moment that the Spirit of God will exhibit His power. Every night I sit in my recliner and I look at my calendar for the next day and I pray for each appointment on there, each demand, each expectation, each situation in which I need to step into in one way or another. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, uh, give me love. Give me the grace. I need your help. Help me be present to this person. Help me not be thinking about my own junk when I walk in, you know? So, but we can take Jesus' command seriously. I mean, we've made it our mission at this church, and I think we just ought to say, Lord, that, we're, that's our heart. That's where we're going. That's what we want, but we can't do it on our own. We desperately need you to fill us by your Spirit. Shed abroad your love in our hearts because we can't do it on our own. Uh, my second word that I hope will be helpful is notice and follow up what you notice. Notice and follow up what you notice. Now, I'm not especially good at this. I'm an NT on the Myers-Briggs. I can easily get lost inside my head. <laughs> so if I ever walk by you sometime and you're bleeding and I don't notice, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but we can get better. And I'm working. Okay. Last week, two friends of ours, uh, Don and, and his wife Brenda, came over to see Karen and me to check on her after surgery. And they brought some flowers, and we had a nice conversation, talked for a while. And when they were heading out the door, our front door, Don noticed that there was all this mulch all over our sidewalks, that the torrential downpours that we all had about a week or so ago, if you remember those, took about a third of the mulch out of our front flower beds and just spread it all over the driveway. Well, you know what? I knew that. I'd actually seen it the night before, but I, with my hip not being very good, I was like, uh, okay, some other day, some other time. Don't know how that's going to happen, but it's not me right now. So I went back in. So, but when they were walking out after they'd been visiting for a while and needed to get on their way, Don turns around and goes, where's your broom? Can I sweep your walk? Man, that still ministers to me. And Jesus says, I'm going to stake my reputation on that. That will prove you're my followers. That right there. 
And my third and final pastoral word is something I've learned in these years when Karen has, has gone through multiple surgeries, and that is this. My time is not my own. Say that to yourself again. My time is not my own. One reason why I don't notice as well as I could is I'm thinking about my plan and my project and my time, which is my own. In my mind, it is, right? So I miss it, or I resist it. I see the mulch, and I go, man, that was a heavy downpour, wasn't it? <laughs> but here's what's actually the case, and here's something I've been learning from the Lord. So this, this is gold to me. When I woke this morning, 24 hours were given to me in trust to do with them whatever God has in mind. So, you know what? I didn't buy those on Amazon. They didn't come next day delivery. I didn't go into the garage and make them. I didn't grow those hours in my garden. They are a free and overflowing grace gift from God to say, here's your day. And your plans are good and important, and I've called you to do those things, but that's not all. Because when you're in community, see, your need is part of my time now. You're not an interruption. You're on the plan. But I can't get to that emotionally. Maybe you can. I can't. While I'm thinking, my time is my own. I've got to change. I've got to switch the gearbox somehow and say, you know what? My time is not just for me. It's also for you. And trying to get that right is, 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 a, is something we need the Lord's help for too. Well, friends of the Savior, I invite you, I invite me, I invite us all to just enter into this amazing reality of community where we try to love each other. We will do it poorly. That's what forgiveness is for. But I, I, if you are here and you're not in this community deeply enough to be annoyed by people, irritated with people, hurt by people, you ain't in deep enough yet. Keep coming in. Keep coming in. And then when you get there, pray with the rest of us. Lord, we can't love on our own, but we can do it with your help. Amen.